If you got your Bible, find the Gospel of John. And when you find the Gospel of John, find chapter 2. So that we can make our way through this gospel completely in this school year, we're going to have some Sundays where we have to cover a bigger chunk than we normally would. Today's going to be one of those days. We'll think pretty much through the whole chapter of chapter 2. We we spent, I can't remember, three or four Sundays on chapter 1 and going to do chapter 2 in just one day, which tells us the story of two episodes in the life and early ministry of Jesus, the, the, the first episode being the, the first of seven signs in John's gospel where he turns water into wine, and then the second episode being when he enters into the temple and uh, drives out the, 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 the animals and the, and the money changers out of the temple, makes a whip out of cords and drives them out. Normally, I think, if I know myself, I would probably take each of these episodes and give them each their own day and, and dive into them deeply. But today we're going to think about them together just by necessity. At first I didn't quite understand how, how they would flow together naturally, how they would, how, how they would come together to make one, one good point. Um, but after thinking through it and reading it again and again and thinking through it, trying to do it carefully, I think it's clear that John saw them connected, and he meant for us to see them together. And, and, um, and really, we've said, it many, we've said it many times that when you read the Gospels especially, we should always read the Gospels with an eye toward that. Because, again, like we've said many times, when the Gospel writers were writing, they weren't writing um, just straightforward biographies of Jesus like we're accustomed to reading biographies. Um, but they were rather, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were compiling, yes, true events of Jesus in his life and ministry, true sayings of Jesus, and they weren't totally uh, careless about chronology, but they were almost as much as chronology. They were trying to compile these true events, these true teachings, these true sayings, compile them in such a way that it teaches us something about how they compiled them. That makes sense. In other words, to use today's passage as an example John intends to teach us something just in the story of Jesus turning water into wine. I mean, that, that story standalone should teach us something. Likewise, the story of Jesus clearing out the temple, making a whip out of cords and driving out the money changers, etc. That story standalone ought to teach us something. But also, John intends to teach us something by putting these two stories back to back. And you read them seamlessly one to the other. Um, there's a connection between them. Alrighty. And that's, that's how I want us to think through uh, this passage together today. Um, what does he, my goodness, why does, uh, what does John intend to teach us through each of these episodes? And then what does he intend to teach us by, by putting them back to back like this? So we need to read the passage first, and then we're going to dive in and try to see this. So if you have found uh, John 2, follow along with me as I read beginning in Verse 1, and again, we'll read the whole chapter. It's not, not super long. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Those are big jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to, to Capernaum and with, his, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69 verse 9. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture that the word, and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about, about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, and errant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Would you give us minds to understand the truth here, the truth that it conveys to us about the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you give us hearts to embrace uh, and love Jesus as we see him here? Would you give us wills to obey whatever this passage that you've spoken to us leads us to do? Give us eyes to see. Give us, um, give us ears to hear. We know that... that um, Anyone can come to this, this book and read it and understand the sentences. But it, it, it takes a sovereign movement of your Holy Spirit that, that really gives us eyes to see and ears to hear here. So would you do that for us, please? Um, give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so not surprisingly, um, based on what we saw in the, in, the, in the first chapter, John's focus in this second chapter is to continue demonstrating, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I want to say what's here, is to continue demonstrating how Jesus brought about the, the end and the fulfillment of, of all that came before in the Old Testament, and he was bringing about 
all that the Old Testament promised would come in the latter days, in the last days, uh, in the days to come. That's a, that's a phrase that you see over and over and over again in the Old Testament, talking about what would come in the latter days, in the last days, in the days to come. Um, and, 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 and God, the, every time it talks about that, it was talking about something special that God would do that he's not currently doing right now in the Old Testament period, that we're waiting for him to do, something special that he's going to do to bring salvation to his people in the last days, in the latter days. Let me just give you one example of that. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Something special is going to happen in the latter days. But what exactly? What exactly is this special thing that's going to happen? Here's how God told it through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming, these latter days. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like. It's not going to be like the covenant you're, you're right now under, Old Testament believers. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That would be the covenant of law that God established through Moses. It's not going to be like that covenant. My covenant that they broke, they broke that covenant. From the, from the very first day, they promised, we will be obedient to all you command. We will do what you say, and then they do not. They wander disobediently in the wilderness for 40 years. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, Jeremiah says. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's an important phrase for what we're going to read today in John 2. God says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, this future day coming, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Ezekiel says that that's the Holy Spirit within us. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That's a, re that's a regenerate church that he's promising declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. That's the day coming that the Old Testament is looking forward to. That's what's going to happen in the latter days, right? That's what the Old Testament promises would come about in those last days. God would enter into a new covenant uh, with his people that's, that's not like the one that they were currently under with the, the law through Moses it wouldn't be like that, that Judaism was built on. It wouldn't be like that because this new covenant would not be based on our ability to keep a law that God gives us because we're not capable of that. Israel was not capable of that. My covenant that they broke, he says. But rather, in these days coming, the Old Testament said, God would provide a new covenant, and instead of giving us a law to obey, he would put his law by his Spirit in our hearts and cause us, as Ezekiel said, he would cause us to walk in his ways. And he would provide a once-for-all final sacrifice that really could forever forgive our sins. I will remember their sins no more, he says. Well, John says Jesus was coming to bring that about. He said it again and again in chapter 1, and he's not going to let up on that purpose in chapter 2. In fact, 
He's probably even clearer on that in chapter 2 than he was even in chapter 1. Uh, if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see in John 2. The Two things primarily. First, I, John shows us uh, the arrival of the new covenant, the arrival of the new covenant with the coming of Jesus. We see that very clearly in the story of Jesus turning water into wine, the arrival of the new covenant. Second, with Jesus clearing the temple, uh, we see the accomplishment of the new covenant, at least the accomplishment foreshadowed because we're not at the end of John yet. <laughs> how, how Jesus would actually go about bringing about those promises that were promised in the new covenant, because it wouldn't happen simply by his coming. He had a work to do to bring it about, all right? And then, and then John will end the chapter with just a few brief comments about how we receive these blessings. So that said, let's take a closer look at the chapter thing first about the arrival of the new covenant. So this chapter, just to teach you a little bit about John when you're reading John this this is a, a this passage begins a little neighborhood in John that runs to the end of chapter 4 um it this like if you're just looking at John I mean like this this past this section beginning from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 4 it begins and ends with Jesus in Cana of Galilee um uh, he's there in the in the beginning of the section uh, at a wedding, turn water into wine, and he's back there again in Cana of Galilee at the end of chapter four uh, to heal an official's son. So where where John means us to look at the events of this this section together because they're going to have a, a, a thematic connection between the, the events, uh, consistent themes throughout. But looking more closely at what we have here in front of us, the elements of this story. Are, are pretty basic, even though what actually happens is anything but basic. He miraculously turns water into wine, and good wine at that. And John calls that the first of his signs. And John gives seven signs throughout his gospel pointing to who Jesus is. The setting is a Jewish wedding feast, which would have gone on for, for days up to a week in that day. And the story notes that it was on the third day of that feast with many more days to go that they ran out of wine, which would have been a, an extremely embarrassing situation for the hosts, right? So Jesus' mother Mary asks Jesus to do something about it, and she comes to him and she simply says, they have no wine. It's interesting based on Jesus' answer to, to his mother that it appears that Mary was not as concerned with the embarrassment of the family over running out of wine, as much as she understood who her son was, and she was asking him to reveal it publicly. Why do we think that? Again, look at Jesus' answer. So she comes, they have no wine, Jesus, and he answers in verse 4, woman, which, by the way, was very, a very common uh, uh, address in, in, in that day. I mean, it's not, he went like, woman, what are you, he's not that. He just, that's how they would address. Woman is not disrespectful. What does this have to do with me? Literally, it's an idiom. It says, what to me to you? <laughs> he says, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus' answer indicates, if I do this and you know it, you know it, Mary. It, the cat's out of the bag if I do this. 
And, she, and, and, and Jesus, you know what you're asking me to do. She was clearly asking him to perform a miracle and it would be to reveal himself publicly. Mary wasn't having any of it because she's like, do whatever he tells you to do. And, uh, and, and so they got six empty jars, huge jars. Jesus told them to fill them with water, draw out uh, some of the water of one of the jars, take it to the master of the feast. And at some point in that process, that water turned into wine and really good wine at that because the master of the feast didn't know where it come from, even though the people who drew the water knew that it came, Jesus did it. And the master of the feast went to the bridegroom and said, what's going on? You, you should have served this wine first. Most people serve the good wine first, and then that, when they don't care anymore, you serve the bad wine. That's the basics of the story. It's amazing in its own right. Water into wine, you know. Uh, but John tells the story with so many more details that add they it, that add uh, depth and meaning to this story that is that is not just on the surface there. Now I want, that's what I want us to see. But it's it's clear that John wants to tell us more than simply Jesus could turn water into wine, which is amazing in its own right. It's a sign of his deity. Who else can do that? But like I said earlier, though he's he he's showing us through through the details that he has, he's showing us that the old covenant was coming to an end and the new covenant was coming in with the arrival of Jesus. How does John show us this? It's in the details. John did not waste a word here. He, he doesn't tell us just that there was a wedding, does he? If you're looking carefully at the text, he says, on the third day, there was a wedding. On the third day. It's interesting for a couple of reasons. For one, throughout the Old Testament, um, Important things happened on the third day. That's just a phrase that you see. If you're just taking careful inventory of what you're reading when you read it, important things happened on the third day throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, when, when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice the son of promise, when he, Isaac, his only son, when he says, sacrifice him, that's a, big, that's a big event in the Old Testament, right? This, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. It tells us in Genesis 22:4 that after Abraham had received that command, on the third day they set out, right? Or you think of in Exodus chapter 19, when God was revealing the law, this covenant of law through Moses. That's a big deal, right? That's a big momentous shift in the history of Israel. They are receiving a law that would govern them, and a whole covenant through that. When God revealed that law to Moses and Moses uh, read the law to the people, Exodus 19, three times in Exodus 19, where God tells Moses, get the people ready, consecrate the people on the first day, consecrate them on the second, because on the third day, I'm going to come down and reveal myself to the people on the mountain. And it says, on the third day, on the mountain, there was thunder and lightning and smoke, and the Lord revealed himself to the people on the third day. Jonah is swallowed up by a great fish, and when is he released from that? On the third day. I mean, big things happened on the third day over and over again, significant moments in the history of Israel. And so when John opens this chapter, not, not as he had done in the, in the first chapter, if you think about the first chapter, where he just kept saying the next day, the next day, the next day, and now he, he instead, instead begins with, on the third day, those who were familiar with their Bible, which was the Old Testament, 
they might expect that something important was about to happen. And it was. And not only that, but when it says, that if, you, if you're just reading John, when it says the third day, in John, it's actually the seventh day. It's actually the seventh day, because like I just mentioned, in chapter 1, chapter 1 covers a period of four days. And this happened, and the next day this happened, and the next day this happened, and the next day this happened. And so this would be, chapter 2 is the third day after that. So this is actually the seventh day in the Gospel of John. And in Scripture, the number seven always, is always used to indicate perfection or completeness. Right? So that's why in like, in the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is cryptically referred to as the seven spirits of God. It's the perfect Holy Spirit, right? The number seven is significant in Scripture. It's, 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 it's the number of completeness. So this, this passage is telling us that something is, is complete now, something is coming to an end, and something new is beginning, right? And it hints at, at what, was, what those two things are. It hints that uh, in the in the flow of John's gospel, and even in this this um, this passage here, that it is the law and the covenant that with Moses that was complete. Now, the law that was coming to an end, because that which it was always pointing forward to, which was now here, this new thing is Jesus Christ, and He's here, and all the other elements of this story bear that out. Because again, what is the occasion here? It's a wedding. It's a wedding. And we already saw in that passage that I read at the very beginning in Jeremiah chapter 31, the Lord had told through Jeremiah the people, it's not this new covenant that I'm going to do, that I'm going to bring about, is not like the old covenant through Moses, which they broke, though I was their husband. Right? So God related to his people, even in the Old Testament, like a marriage. He their husband, they his bride. And the new, and when the new covenant is, is prophesied. Um, nothing changes about that. Here's how we we read about this new covenant in Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, the Lord says about the new covenant, and in that day, that latter day, that future day, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will make for them a covenant on that day, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and, and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So it isn't mere coincidence in John 2 that this first sign that Jesus performs takes place at a wedding. It's a visible sign that the new covenant marriage between God and his people is about to take place. And it's confirmed even more because the wine of the old covenant marriage was run out, and it was empty. And Jesus provides better wine, new wine, better wine, filled to the brim. Picturing a new marriage of a better covenant is here. It's just like the, the prophet Amos. Prophet Amos prophesied in Amos 9, 13 and 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, this new covenant when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And is it also just coincidence 
that one of the primary metaphors in the Bible between Jesus and his church is he is the bridegroom and we are the bride? And is it just coincidence that the first event described in Revelation 19 after Jesus comes back that he does with his people is a marriage supper? John said in chapter 1, verse 17, for the, for the law was given through Moses. And that's pictured here as empty old covenant purification jars. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, pictured in chapter 2 as Jesus filling those empty pots to the brim with new wine, better wine, better than the old. And in this, John says in verse 11, Jesus manifested his glory. This opening act of, of his public ministry signaled the arrival of the new covenant. Not like the old covenant. It's not, not based on our ability to keep the law and measure up and do what God says, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot do it. But the new covenant promises. It's not based on law. It's based on promise. And it promises the forgiveness of our sins and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us and the faithfulness of Christ to us despite our waywardness to Him as His bride. Those are the, new, the promises of the new covenant. But how would they come about? Jesus signaled the arrival of this, this event with the, with the wedding feast and the water into wine. But how would it come about? It's here. How's it going to happen? And that seems to be exactly what John wants to communicate as he transitions to the next episode, beginning in verse 13, where I believe he, sh he foreshadows the accomplishment of the new covenant. Let's think about that quickly. It tells us in verse 12, if you're looking at verse 12, that a few days passed before the next episode took place. It tells us where they went in verse 12, who was there, and it says they stayed there for a few days. But the bare facts of what happened in the second episode are clear just like the first one. Jesus entered the temple, drove out the money changers, drove out the animals they were selling, told them they were profaning the temple, cryptically prophesied uh, about his own death and resurrection in a way that the Jewish leaders did not comprehend. That's what happened. But if we look a little closer at the details of the story, again, we see a very clear and very intentionally drawn picture from John telling us how Jesus would bring about um, the new covenant that he pictured arriving with the new wine at the wedding feast. How? How would it happen? Well, for one, John doesn't just say that this took place a few days later, does he? No. He says it was the Passover in verse 13. The Passover was at hand. What did people go up to Jerusalem at the Passover to do in that day? What did they go up there to do? They went up there to offer sacrifice for their sins. Right? It was a holy day in the year. It was a day, I mean, they had different days at which they would go and they would, they would offer sacrifices, but the Passover was the big one. And that's, that's when they would go up and they would, as a family, offer sacrifice an animal for their own sins, for the sins of their family. What did Jesus do next, though? He drives out the very animals. He drives out the very animals that they would have sacrificed for their own sins, along with the animal's owners, along with their sellers. 
He drives. They go up there to offer sacrifice, and many of them had to had to uh, travel long distances to get to Jerusalem. And what they would they would have to sell or or trade some of their belongings once they got there for an animal to sacrifice. And when they and so when Jesus walks in. He goes to the place where people would be getting their animal for the sacrifice, and he drives them out of the temple along with the animal's owners and sellers. And when asked in the story, by what authority do you do this? His answer is about his own death and resurrection. He said, what authority do you have? And his answer is, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again on the third day. There that third day. They thought he's talking about the, the big, massive structure that they were standing right in, in the middle of, this, this old, old Testament temple. Destroy this temple. That's why they were like, it took 46 years to build this. What are you talking about? But John says, what does he say? Verse 21 when Jesus said this, he was speaking about the temple of his own body. This is, again, something is coming to an end. Something new is coming about. The end of God's presence in this physical temple was coming to an end. Jesus, God in human flesh, is now the temple. This is where the presence of God resides. Think about John in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He tabernacled because He's God in human flesh, and now is He not just tabernacling among us and we beheld His glory, but now He testifies that His own body is the temple of God. This is no longer the temple. This is the temple. This is the temple. And God Himself was coming in Jesus Christ on the Passover to sacrifice His own body in human flesh for the sins of His people and bring about for them through His own death and resurrection in their place the new covenant blessings that were promised to them. This is all pictured. This, is, this doesn't actually happen in this episode, but it's all pictured. It's prophesied. In, 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 in this Passover event in John 2. But there's a second Passover. There's another Passover before we get through with John. There's another Passover in John chapter 13. Right before this Passover, what does Jesus say? My hour has not yet come. But in the other Passover, later in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, here's how it begins. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, giving his life for them. The new covenant was arriving with the coming of Christ, pictured in turning water to wine at a wedding feast. The new covenant would be accomplished at Passover, pictured here through his sacrificial death and substitutionary death for his people, actually accomplished at a later Passover in John's gospel. The question that John wants us to pose, because we've mentioned his, his purpose statement many times at the end of the book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his apostles. If we wrote them all, we couldn't fit it in this book, but we recorded these so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. That, 
That, that is his purpose, not just at the end. That is his purpose throughout the book. And the question he poses to us here in John 2 uh, is that very question. We've been told since the first chapter that those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And likewise, in John chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then now, in verse 23, at the end of the chapter, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is John's purpose in writing the book. His purpose is that we know these things about Christ, see Him clearly for who He is, and marvel at Him. Understand what He's done for us. Marvel at Him and believe. Believe. And belief, belief is fitting for the new covenant. It is fitting for the new covenant because nothing, absolutely nothing, that the new covenant promises is anything that we can earn or deserve by our own goodness or by our own effort. All that there is to do is believe it or not believe it. The old covenant showed us that a covenant that's dependent on my own goodness and my own obedience before God is a covenant that I will only break again and again and again because of my sinfulness. The new covenant promises to those who will believe and rest on Christ from all their labors the forgiveness of their sins, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and a future forever with Him assured. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this, this beautiful passage uh, in John 2. Uh, Lord, I, 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 th I thank You that, that You have done these things for us. I, and I thank You that as You've recorded these things for us in Scripture, you did it so beautifully that you didn't just say, here's what happened. That you wove together an intricate fabric and tapestry showing us the truth. Weaving together words, phrases from the Old Testament and pictures and prophecies so that the, 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 the tapestry um, of the new covenant is not, is not woven together by just one or two threads, but many, many threads woven together. It's beautiful. It's, 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 it just confirms to us again and again and again in deeper and richer ways the truth of what we just read. Who could have made it up? Who could have been so careful to contrive such a story? Now, this story is so clearly off the page, your word and your truth. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.